This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. We're back with another episode. One of two while Simon is taking some time off enjoying the summer. But... That's exciting because we have Barry Schwartz joining us on the podcast. That two or three time returning guest here. You're like a, a borderline celebrity here, Barry. This is my third time. And if you have me on have me on five times, I want a jacket or something or a mug. <laughs> yeah. like, uh, you know, I can't keep doing this for free. I know, seriously. We'll get you we'll get you some merch. Don't worry. Uh s- send me time. your address. Yeah, yeah, about time. Well, I, I appreciate you doing this on Barry quick. Quick uh, intro to you. You are the chief investment officer of Baskin Wealth Management. Uh, I don't want to steal your thunder. Give it, give me the the elevator pitch on on Baskin. The elevator pitch on Baskin is we manage money for high net worth clients across Canada, and we try to take a no nonsense, common sense approach to managing money. We're very plain vanilla in the sense that we like investing in high quality stocks, high quality bonds. And uh, we pride ourselves on our transparency and our clear uh, approach to investing. And I try to not do dumb things with our clients' money. And that's what keeps you in business. Better to hit the singles and the doubles and the triples and trying to go for the grand slams every time. And, uh, you know, we also do financial planning and really try and uh, think about uh, how to customize a portfolio for each and every family because everybody's different. So no cookie cutter approach here. And um, what you see is what you get. I've been doing this for 20 plus years and God willing, got another 20 plus more in me and uh, just want to keep compounding my money, my client's money. That's that's the most fun part of what I do every day, Braden. Love it. I'm sold. You just scored yourself some extra AUM. Nice. Uh, the, the first time I came to your office, because we're like real life friends, right, Barry? First time I came to your office to chat about investing, career advice, which by the way, thank you for all that. You mentioned one of the first things you ever mentioned to me was your biggest mistakes in terms of costliness were actually selling winners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Charlie Munger says, quote, the first rule of compounding is never interrupt it unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. This is, of course, harder said than done, like most things with portfolio management. How do you think about this concept today? I still think it's the same approach, but you have to also recognize that I'm managing money for you know families and individuals, and we just can't let a stock ride up to 20, 30, 40% of the portfolio if that ever happened. And we have to have some unemotional processes built into managing money because most of my clients are in the uh, living off their portfolio mode and they don't want to go through the volatility. And uh, so, yeah, every every time we've trimmed Apple over the last, we've held it for 10 plus years, it's been a mistake. Every single time, Brandon, it's been a mistake, but it's the right thing to do from a portfolio management risk uh, process management. I, I'm not a hedge fund. I'm not a mutual fund. I'm not trying to uh, get the the greatest returns ever and become uh, you know a super billionaire. I just want to what you know what makes me happy, Braden, is if I have a client that retires and ten years later they still have that money or more in retirement and living off their portfolio. That that brings a smile to my face, and that's what we're looking to achieve. And, uh, you know, clients will self-select what they're looking for, but we treat it as we're managing people's, their entire wealth. So you have to do different things, uh, in terms of managing. But to answer your question specifically. Yeah. yeah how about this? How about yeah. this? 
CIO Baskin yeah. hat off, yeah. Barry managing his own money or, you know, put put yourself in the the listener's shoes here. Yeah. What do you what do you think about this just generally? Well, you know, you got to find it a little silly in some sense that you find it risky when you own some of the greatest companies in the world to trim them or to sell them when most of us are business owners, entrepreneurs, and we have the entirety of our wealth in one investment, right? Um, I'm a, a large owner of Baskin Wealth Management. That's the entirety of my wealth. And uh, I don't think that doesn't keep me up at night. Yet uh, you wake up in the morning, you look at the futures and you're scared, you know, poopless to own uh, too much of quality growth stocks or too much of an apple, right? So yeah, there's cognitive dissonance that goes on with uh, those kind of things. But you know, the bottom line is you got to think like a business owner and don't give up equity so quickly. Like, I wouldn't right. be giving up equity uh, in Baskin uh, Wealth Management to some person that kept offering me a lower price every day. I'd be nonsensical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yet, uh, you know, you give up equity in a heartbeat in the stock market because your brain makes you do it. So, you know, those are those are risks of investing. But I think I've kind of evolved my thinking in terms of uh, risk. And, and the risk is really, I said it off the top, I try not to do dumb things. And, you know, you can just buy the S&P 500 and hold it for life. And I think you're going to do really, really well. And that will avoid you and keep you from doing really dumb things like using leverage, buying speculative stuff, trading, uh, locking up your money in some kind of alternative or taking flyers. So to me, it's, you know, there's two sides of the coin. It's really be cognizant that you own businesses and why would you give them up so quickly? And also be cognizant that you're you're putting your hard work worked money into your investments to grow up for your retirement and your family and why do you do foolish things as well, right? So uh, I think those two things can really, if you think about it, can really uh, do wonders for your retirement portfolio. Absolutely. It's that uh, you know fighting activity. When the world tells you to do something, yeah. uh, the world tells you, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that stock that everyone loved last year is no good, no more, or that, that, shitty, that <laughs> shitty Facebook business yeah. that is left for dead in 2022 is the greatest thing since sliced bread in 23. Yeah, uh, but we're human. I, you got to fight it. We're yeah. human. So like, let me give you a quick example. I was talking to my colleague, Ernest Wong, who's our head of research today, and we're, we were talking about Hyatt Hotels. We bought Hyatt Hotels in 2018. We were excited about the thesis. Hyatt was going to become a, a franchisee of its hotels like Hilton, like Marriott. And as it becomes a franchisee, it the, the returns on capital increase, the free cash flow increases. It was just a, a great thesis. And then, of course, COVID hit. So then you, like, you could have been wiped out. Like We just didn't know how COVID would have played out in terms of business and leisure travel. It could have been an easy zero. So, you know, it's easy to say, of course, you know, uh, don't trim your winners, don't do a lot of activity, but context is everything. Absolutely. I mean, this, you know, in a vacuum, all of these things sound great yeah. in, in books and in podcasts, but, uh, you know, <laughs> life is a little bit different. But I, I do think that it's important to, to revisit those, those things conceptually because, we are emotional beings and, uh, you know, fighting, fighting our behavioral biases is something that usually comes out with better returns. Yeah. I, I mean, the, there are 
tricks and tips to help you with that, right? Studying psychology, studying uh, emotional behavior. But, you know, we're just, we're just animals. So the best way that I know how to fight that stuff is go fishing for big fish, buy good businesses, stay away from crap, uh, think long term. Those types of things we all, we always repeat. It sounds so generic. But cliche, as, yeah. yeah, cliche. But those things work because what you're really trying to do as a long-term investor is is fight those human behavior, emotional biases that get us all. So if you're starting, like you play golf, I see you're a pretty good golfer. Not right, not right now. I'm okay. in a slump, but that's right. besides the point. Yeah. So <laughs> I always think about we don't call them the ladies' tees anymore, right? That's that's inappropriate. But if you're if you want to, you know, challenge yourself, you play from the blues. If you wanted to make things easier for yourself, you start from the red tees, right? And so, same as in investing. You can make life easier for yourself as a long-term investor by shooting from the red tees. So, by doing all those things that every long-term investor says, uh, you know, uh, Terry Smith from Fundsmith, he says it right. I don't overpay. I buy good companies. I don't do a lot of trading. Those are the... Those it's so generic and so cliche, but those things work as long as you follow along with that long term mindset. Love it. So you kind of hinted at it before. I mean, you know, we're we're, we're actively trying not to be traders of businesses, mm-hmm. but you know, sometimes the thesis changes, sometimes the reality changes. You mentioned it there with the hotel biz. Mm-hmm. When when directionally in your process is the time to to part ways with a business. Well, I like to think that we're always researching new new ideas and new companies. And if we find something that we think offers a better long-term rate of return than something that we currently own without um, causing a significant tax problem, uh, that should be the consideration. So, you know, just going back to what I think about is it's pretty simple. I, I want to double my money over five years on an investment. I want to have a 15% compound IRR before tax, before fees. That's what I want in terms of an investment uh, when I'm looking at a stock. Um, I'll, 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 of course, I'll settle for low double digits. I'll be pleased as punch to do that. And so why do we come up with that number? Well, we come up with that number because over the long term, the S&P 500 has, a to- has had a total return of close to 10% compound, right? And so what's the point in picking and being an active investor if you're just trying to do 10% a year, yeah, like you don't need me. Um, so we're, we're trying to buy investments that will earn a better rate of return than 10% a year. So therefore, we're looking to double our money over five years, five, uh, 15% compound rate of return. So if we found something that we thought had, I don't know, 20% compound rate of return, and we did the math, and we couldn't on something that we currently own that we couldn't see as high a return, you got to weigh the odds. So, I mean, it really should be math, number one, make, to make your decisions. Of course, life isn't so simple. Um, you know, you may have a tax issue. You may love that stock. It may be the wrong time. Uh, it may be going through a temporary problem. You know, you never know. Um, but that's really the sell decision that should be number one on your priority. And I guess number two is if um, the business no longer makes sense because something has changed in the world, whether it's disruption, com- competitive position, interest rates, inflation, uh, you name it. Um, so, you know, those those should be the reasons to make the sales. Um, it shouldn't be because, you know, you want activity or you're bored. <laughs> uh, it should be uh, fundamental 
as a long-term investor. And, that, and that's how we operate. I don't trade stocks. I'm not going in there every day and saying, oh my God, Amazon's up 2%. Let's trim a little Amazon and buy some more uh, Moody's. Like We don't think like that. Um, we, we want to either A, own more of it, B, own less of it, or C, get rid of it and switch it for something else. Love it. Great answer. Which stock has Barry Schwartz personally held the longest, a name that you currently own to this mm-hmm. day? Yeah. So uh, in my RSP, which is my longest running investment account, uh, is National Bank of Canada. That's been my in- investment in there that's I've held probably since 2004. Uh, so probably going on 20 plus years. I have added to it many times over the years. Um, it's not it's not my largest holding on a holistic basis, but it's a nice size position in uh, my investment account. Um, and I, I wish, Braden, I would say to you that uh, you know, 20 years ago, I had the approach I have now. We're always learning, always trying to compound our knowledge. So uh, you know, I don't have any other investments that I've held for 19, 20 years. Wish I would have just put you know a lot more money in my RSP at that time into uh, Berkshire Hathaway or something like that. I was also a lot younger and certainly didn't have uh, a lot of money in the RSP at that time at age. I'm 49 now, so 30 years old. It's not like you have a lot of room to make a lot of money in an RSP. Well, that is still no small feat. Yeah. Not many people can say that they've held a a particular security for for two decades uh, and and one that's been you know, a, a terrific compounder. Uh, Still happy to uh, hold it well. today if you want to talk about it. My my best performing investment in my RSP is Microsoft, which I looked because uh, you, you sent me a few questions to talk about. But yeah. uh, Microsoft, is, uh, my cost base is like $25 Canadian. So I think Oof, I started nice. buying that around 2012, 2013. When the business was the most unloved in the Steve Ballmer area, right about there. Yeah, David Baskin and I researched it at that time. And we just said, you know, the worst comes to worst. It's a utility with a beautiful balance sheet. And it was a nice dividend yield at that time. I think it was like two, almost 3%. Um, you know, the stock had gone nowhere for a long time. And we, and we just said, well, we'll get, we'll get some dividends. Uh, the valuation is quite low. I never could have envisioned the cloud and uh, all the uh, wonderful things that have happened since. Right. Like you had this period from basically, I'm just looking at Microsoft right yeah. now. You had this period from... Uh, 2002, basically after the bust, uh, not even like 2000, actually all the way to 2012 where the stock literally did 0% traded flat the whole way. And this is a very common characteristic of these mega winners, right? Yes. The business may be compounding, but it's trying to catch up to that price that it traded for. True. And I I love go, I love listening to people who knew nothing about on Twitter. They just know price, right? They, they, they don't (laughs) know the context at the time with Mike. Well, you can, you know, if you buy NVIDIA now and you overpay, because uh, it's so expensive, you, you may it may pull a Microsoft or a Cisco and do nothing for ten years. Who knows, right? You have to co- constantly evaluate the business and the sustainable growth and the profits and what's going on. Microsoft deserved to do nothing for ten years. Uh, maybe a lot of it was starting high valuation, but a lot of it was the business wasn't growing uh, right. at, at the same way. And also, the businesses because of the cloud, they weren't. They weren't then what they are today. It's just dramatically different businesses because of cloud. Distribution and, and yeah. margins are entirely different. Yeah, exactly. So it's 
you know, I was listening to a podcast with Chris Mayer. He's saying like, why are people? I just interviewed him 45 yeah. minutes ago. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> like he says like, why are people comparing 16 times earnings 10 years ago to 16 times earnings today on the S&P 500 or whatever? You know, why? It makes no sense. The makeup of all the companies are so different. It's whatever. It's a, it, it's, it's a nitpick of our business. Yeah. Well, you, you, Go ahead. What you don't. <laughs> What, you don't like uh, global distribution at no incremental cost? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, although, I Pretty mean, special. the CapEx of Microsoft and some of those companies is, is, is significant. Is no yeah, no yeah. joke. But yeah, you're Amazon, absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Amazon spent a couple bucks in uh, 2020 Crazy. there. Crazy. Um, okay, wonderful. So this is the Canadian Investor Pod. Uh, you know, we, we've seen the the numbers on what Canadians are holding in their brokerage accounts on like a DIY basis. There is significant home bias uh, when it comes to equities. Why is it so important to fight that bias and hold equities in the US or internationally? I think, you know, we've been on the the pod here now for 20 minutes and only talked about National Bank yeah. uh, and, and a bunch of other names. Uh, why is this so important? Well, I'm biased, Braden, to owning great businesses. So I, I screen, I want to own the best businesses in the world wherever I can find them and not overpay. There's not a lot of them in Canada. So for me, it's I, I'm hard pressed. And my best Canadian ideas are really just U.S. companies in disguise. Um, <laughs> why is there home bias? There's home bias for a lot of good reasons. There's a home bias because uh, the Canadian dividend tax credit. There's a home bias because for 10 years prior to the financial crisis, the S&P 500 was lousy and the TSX did a lot better. Um, so there's some, I wouldn't call it recency bias, but the history bias of, uh, of liking the TSX better. There's a fallacy that the Canadian banks have been, you know, unbelievable performers. Um, you know, maybe the past prior to the last 10 years, that, that was true, but not, not recently, of course. Um, and Canadians love their dividends. So that's, yes, that's the whole certainly bias. do. Yeah. <laughs> They'll hold Enbridge and TransCanada Pipeline and say, I'm loving that dividend, but not recognizing that it's not a great, they're not great businesses. They're not even good businesses. Uh, they're, they got good assets, no question, but it's not the type of business that I, I'd be throwing my money at. Um, so uh, that's the thing. I, I, we're just we're just born and raised on on dividends, and so that's that's where yep. the bias comes from. It's it's yield or bust in yeah. in for can- Canadians. It's like you know whether it's it's real estate investing or uh, you know dividend investing. It seems to be yield or bust. And we've talked extensively on this podcast about how we think that is a dramatic mistake, especially for people who are you know twenty eight have. 40 years of compounding and they're buying, uh, you know, some junky 8% yielder. It's worse than that because I th- a lot of Canadians have been like, we were in a 40 year bond uh, bear market, right? Where interest rates, you know, you, you can hear it from your parents, uh, like where, you know, and, and my parents, their first mortgage was 18%. And, you know, they are buying Can- Canadian savings bonds. I don't even think you can buy those things anymore. They don't exist, right? And getting 15%. And, um, you know, interest rates just went down over the years. And it made those companies, those bond proxies, the divot, Canadian dividend payers, so much more attractive. Right. Um, and things now have changed. And so I don't think people really understand that a lot of dividend payers are really leveraged bets. 
Um, and a lot of them are, you know, one slip up away from cutting those dividends and then working their butts off to get those dividends back up again. Uh, and they forget. We have short memories. TransCanada 20 years ago cut its dividend. The stock took a decade plus to recover. Um, so, you know, you're betting a lot of them as a bet on interest rates and things have changed in the last year. So unless interest rates go back down to those low levels again, uh, Canadians right now need to really think about that home bias and how it's going to impact their portfolios. Not to mention, I mean, you, you mentioned something really important there. It's like the Canadian ones you like are, you know, basically US businesses that yeah. trade on the TSX. They have global exposure or at least at the minimum US exposure, maybe like thinking like waste connections or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, that's a really important distinction, right? Because, you know, it's a global economy and you and I want businesses that have exposure to billions of people. Well, the internet was the most revolutionary thing the world has ever seen. And instead of being able to sell to your local customer in downtown Toronto or across Canada, now you can sell your goods across the world. So, you know, there's a reason why Shopify became the largest company in Canada. There's a reason why Constellation Software uh, is soon to become, in my opinion, the largest company in Canada. It's these global businesses, uh, the software fit revolution is, is huge and it's, and it's still there. And so I'm not saying to completely abandon your uh, dividend payers and, you know, it may make sense for you. And if you're comfortable only getting the dividend for a decade, then so be it. But, uh, you know, if you want to ha- achieve better rates of returns, you, you got to think a little more globally. Shopify had the RBC curse hit it, right? It's like as soon as it, <laughs> as soon as it passes RBC in market cap, uh, you know, the Reaper comes knocking on the door. Well, it got stupid. It got silly. I mean, it got so it, silly. Yeah, it got so silly. And then it got, it probably fell to silly prices in 2022 as well. It's, uh, it, it's a hard company though to, to understand for Canadians. And, uh, anyway. Yeah. All right. So, what is what is your Mount Rushmore of businesses today? And I'm not going to just cap yeah. you at four. Just just generically, let's throw out valuation. Uh, don't care what it trades at. Don't care if it's a good investment. We're talking strictly quality here. Yeah. So, I I mean, I think Apple is the best business in the world uh, at the moment. Um, you know, and, and I know a lot of people will complain about the valuation and the the growth is slowed. But I think you got to look a little longer term, right? Because it's the cycles of the when the iPhones and new products are released. It's also being impacted by currency. Uh, the U.S. dollar did very, very well against other currencies the last uh, six to twelve months. Um, but the bottom line is Apple. I mean, it's the top of the funnel. Everything starts with Apple. Google pays it like fifteen billion dollars a year to set for search to be the number one default search on your iPhone, and it's worth every penny for Google. Absolutely because, right. It's a they could probably raise it by 50% and no one would care. No, I mean, no. And, and uh, Google, it would be worth it for Google. So uh, everything starts with the iPhone, in my opinion. Everything starts with the, the power of the mobility that Apple provides. And it's a global company. And I, I think, um, you know, they've been very disciplined on capital expenditures. You see, Apple didn't fire all the people like Meta and Amazon and Google. They didn't have to lay off anybody. They said, we're just slowing hiring in some areas. Slowing hiring. Like it's, they're so disciplined. They've returned so much money to shareholders through buybacks and dividends. And now it's generating a hundred plus billion dollars in free cash flow. It's, It's just unbelievable. 
And uh, that's the that's- services. What's this, the run rate on the services business? Is pretty close to hundred billion one of these days too. Probably, I, yeah, I mean, you I'll tell ch- me. I'm check while you're talking. The, the more, the more. Uh, I mean, there's still the world's a big place. There's more uh, iPhones that they can continue to win more customers globally. And once you buy one product, there's more products they can sell you. And so that's the flywheel that we're everybody's trying to think about is what is the long term potential for Apple? It's still it's still really early early days. So that's number one for our Mount Rushmore. Um, I mean, I love, I love, I love Amazon. I love Costco. I love Berkshire Hathaway. I love Constellation Software, and I love them because it's a, a melding of really good business platforms with a combination of smart management, owner-operated approach, um, and a long, still long runways of opportunity. Right, Berkshire perpetual cash machine. There's no end to it. It's now almost an $800 billion market cap company. Where does it stop? He, he, they can just keep buying up things around the world with the free cash flow because they don't pay out dividends. So Costco, um, still so much more white space for Costco to add stores around the world. I think they only have three or four stores in China. It's just getting started. Constellation Software, I'm sure you've talked about it a billion times with other, other guests. on. No, no one on this podcast has ever heard of it. <laughs> so I don't need to go into it, but... Uh, They've never heard of it. Yeah, it's still white space. Are, I mean, are these companies going to compound at the rates of return that they did over the last 10, 20, 30 years? Maybe not. But um, I wouldn't bet against uh, them still delivering outsized excellent returns for your portfolios. And Amazon, I mean, I was... I was so excited to finally see the leverage, the operating margin leverage from the retail business kick in. We always said, Ernest and I were talking about it. It's just like they had to spend like crazy on COVID. They had to meet the demand. That's slowed. It's normalized. You're going to just be patient. You're going to get that leverage. It's going to show up in profits in retail. It's only been one quarter, of course, but we think Andy Jassy is the the right guy to come in to really focus on on sustainable profits and that's why the stock is run. So those to me, Braden, are our favorite names. But I don't know. I could name another 10, 15 names. I, I have a Mount Rushmore with a lot of uh, a lot of <laughs> a lot of heads on it. So uh, it's uh, well, that's good because I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna later ask you about uh, one CAD name and one US name that's okay. maybe not a mega cap uh, to to discuss. Sure. All right. So you've been. Investing your own capital for for decades now, and for clients for a long time, you've seen crashes, crashes. You've crash-ins. seen crashes, yeah. <laughs> recessions, panics, euphoria, decade long bull runs, massive disruption, uh, and the like. You know the iPhone, the Uber, the you know the blood, Airbnb. sweat, and tears, man. Blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> yeah. Among all of that change, what stays the same? Human behavior, and so. You know, human behavior never changes. And the same questions, the same concerns, the same, I mean, it's okay. So on one hand, Braden, human behavior is what keeps me in business, right? Because um, if everybody was sophisticated and everybody had the emotional uh, tolerance of a stoic, they would invest their own money and do nothing. (laughs) You wouldn't have any uh, any clients. Yeah. So as much as I complain about human behavior, 
it, it's what keeps uh, long-term investors in business, right? It gives them the opportunities, but nothing changes. The, the, the same questions, same concerns always come up, and it all has to do with the volatility of stock markets, all right? Uh, stock down, stock must be bad. So Ernest, Ernest had a meeting with one of our clients where we, he went through all, a lot of our stocks in our portfolio, and the client said, well, this one's bad. And, and Ernest said, why is it bad? Well, it's bad because you bought it for me at 250 and now it's 220. Well, it's not bad. It's bad because at, we, it's bad because we overpaid at, in a certain point of time for you, but we've held it for other clients for five years and doubled our money. So, you know, just be patient. And, and we like it here. And we like it here. Uh, you know, not every, and, you know, portfolio management, I hate to say it, but if you're doing it right, you shouldn't have every stock going up at the same time at the same percentage. That means your portfolio isn't diversified. The whole thing about diversification is you have different investments and sectors doing different things in different time periods, but hopefully over the long period, reducing risk because they all do different things. Like that's You should have stocks in your portfolio that are down, but you, know, you shouldn't have a lot of stocks that are down a lot. And and over a long time, <laughs> and over a long time, that's a different thing. So yeah, it's it to me. Nothing has changed with human behavior, and yeah, there's more computers now, and the trading is more violent. And but you know, it's still still nothing has changed in the way I should conduct and we should conduct ourselves as long term investors. Stay the course. Look to own companies that we think can reinvest their cash flows at high rates of return. Uh, have sustainable growing profits. Uh, managements have the incentives to, to invest alongside you. I mean, th- these are the common sense things that I think are going to deliver strong returns for investors. And among all of that noise, intrinsic value is compounded by the growth of free cash flow per share. Yes. Uh, on a long enough time horizon, that doesn't change, right? No. That's the <laughs> Free cash flow per share is what you want. And uh, yeah, happy to t- happy when people say I want free cash flow, but it's free cash flow per share. And uh, if you can see that growing over the long term by double digit rates of return, you don't be surprised if your stock goes up by double digit rates of return. And you know, when I look at Apple, not a lot of growth this year, but no new iPhones coming out. They're buying back stock like crazy. Did you like ninety billion of share repurchases last Great. calendar yeah. year or something? Something insane. Uh, you can yeah. see double digit growth in free cash flow per share in Apple, and uh, I don't care what the starting valuation point is. You can pay thirty times earnings, forty times earnings, twenty times earnings. Uh, if you if you get du- double digit growth in free cash flow per share, you're going to get double digit growth in compound returns from the stock price over a long period of time. So buy those kind of companies. Love it. All right. Uh, this is a section presented by our wonderful friends at EQ Bank. It's called Stocks on Our Watch List. And now it's going to be Stocks on Barry's Watch List. I want uh, one under the radar name. I, I, I can't, I, no, no mega caps, no Amazon, Costco's uh, for on the, the, the TSX and uh, the US markets. Yeah. So we don't own a lot of. Uh non mega large cap names on the uh, but we do own a lot of canadian companies so you know one they don't that, have to be small yeah, caps no, of one course. that i that we've owned for a long time that i don't think people really talk about is the tmx group it's a exchange 
business, right? It owns the, the stock exchange, the venture exchange, also does uh, options trading. Um, it also owns some analytical businesses. So all the data, when people quote stock prices on, on TSX stocks, that comes directly from the TSX and the people pay money monthly to get access to that da- data. It also owns a number of software businesses and um, makes a lot of money. It's an, ex- Braden, it's an extremely profitable business. The profit margins on an exchange are you know, north of 60 plus percent. Um, very, very profitable business, obviously constrained by the fact uh, it's all focused on the Toronto stock market. But um, we, we've, we've owned it for quite a while. And, and I don't think it's had a down year in a long time. It's very defensive um, because good times and bad times, there's always stock market trading. And good times, there's more, there's less trading, but maybe more uh, new issues. And they make money on if you want to list your stock on the TSX. And the bigger you get, the more fees there are. And in bad times, there's obviously less new issues and less secondary offerings, but more trading and more options. And so they they make it's a well diversified business. Never going to set the lights on fire, uh, but you know, boring can be beautiful. And a very reasonable valuation is trading around uh, less than twenty times earnings. Um, it's grown. It, it's grown those earnings uh, at double digits over the last few years, slowing last couple of years, of course, because the market's been insane. Um, and uh, the new CEO, you know, is is promising to get back to double digit earnings growth and generates a lot of free cash flow per share. Started to buy back a little bit of stock. Uh, balance sheet's in great shape, and it pretty much doesn't need any of that capital, so it's, it's been paying heavy dividends. And it's kind of like a railroad. There's no appetite for a new exchange, right? Like there's, the problem, the problem's already solved, right? It's uh, so entrenched. Yeah, uh, there's been competition. Nasdaq has tried to break in. There's been these dark. I mean, we, we can go on a different tangents, but uh, no one has been really able to break uh, the stranglehold that the TSX uh, TMX group has had over the Canadian market. Uh, I mean, it's its share of trading has gone down over time, but. Uh, you know, if you're Canadian Natural Resources, you're uh, Nutrien, you want the most exposure, you're going to list on the TSX index. And uh, it's, a, you know, there's some cyclicality to the business, of course, but we think structurally it's a good growing business. It, the London Stock Exchange tried to buy it years ago when it demutualized. It was nixed by the Canadian government. It would be sold in a heartbeat if allowed. It's it won't be allowed because it's a LSEG would be all over that in a second because you can NASDAQ see the synergies would too. Yeah. And it, you can see the synergies and it's very profitable. So that's always in your back pocket could happen one day. But, uh, you know, we, we have Canadian clients. They invest Canadian dollars. They live off Canadian dollars. I can't have 100% U.S. stocks, although probably should. Uh, so the TSX group is, uh, one that we really like, although. All truth being told, it really should be part of a bigger conglomerate exchange company. Makes sense. All right. And how about uh, south of the border? South of the border. So one that I think is really attractive now, and it's one that's extremely controversial, which makes it attractive, right? So you you can't have it both ways, you, is uh, Live Nation. Um, Live Nation been beaten up to a pulp because of uh, the Taylor Swift uh, nonsense, right? 
what them making <laughs> heaps of money is beating it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Them them making heaps of money. Her making heaps of money. Uh, yeah, he's just talking to a friend, and his daughter wants uh, tickets to Taylor Swift in Toronto. Uh, re- uh, tickets are twenty four hundred dollars each. He said, "Nope, that's not happening for you, sweetheart." Oh my god, that is absurd. Yeah. Um, Ticketmaster, which Live Nation owns, as well as Live Nation, which is its artist promotion business, they go hand in hand. Um, they've just started buying venues, uh, Braden, so they're, it's really vertically integrated. Uh, for those who know yep. Muskoka, they own, they just bought the key to Bala. Did they buy the key? Yeah. Oh, I've had some good times at the key. I didn't uh, know that they owned that. My wife saw the Ramones there in 1994. The Imagine seeing the Ramones at the Key to Bala. That would have been a good time. Unreal. Yeah, and, there's been some good. There's been some great names that have gone through there over the yeah. decades. For those yeah. that know uh, the beaches, they bought the Opera House, and there's a lot of these venues all across North America that uh, you know could be run better if they were owned by Live Nation. Um, and so Live Nation, and it really solidifies their Ticketmaster business by owning the actual infrastructure asset. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. So it's run by a Canadian guy, Michael Rapino, Thunder Bay boy, who uh, rose up the ranks at uh, the company and has done an incredible job. Um, but he he lets a, a lot of his other soldiers take the heat uh, every time uh, <laughs> there's man. a problem with Live Nation. So it's in the headlines a lot because people are worried about uh, them breaking up. Ticketmaster and Live Nation, uh, Joe Biden uh, even mentioned them because, oh, you know, the fees are not transparent on tickets. I mean, we all hate that. It's experience. an easy business to hate. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but it's a world, it's a global business. And what gets me excited is North Americans attend a lot of concerts, but outside North America, it's still a huge runway of growth. Uh, people in Latin America, uh, they just don't attend uh, stadium concerts like we do here. And uh, Live Nation has figured that out. They've bought festivals. They've bought artist promotions around the globe. And, you know, it's not I, I'm not going to say it's a monopoly, but it's it, it's it's a business that if you're an artist, you know, let's say you and I uh, come up with a, you know, a, a great song and we go and want a tour we're only going to make money if we tour. And if we want the most exposure, we got to sign up with Live Nation, right? No one else is going to promote us to as many fans as Live Nation. So um, it's turnkey in a way that the, the, the venue is, is run as well. Yeah. So it's, it's easy. It, it's, a, it's a misunderstood company. I mean, there's no marks in investing for complexity. Um, and, but I think they've done a good job. They have held a lot of investors' days to make it clear how they make money, how they don't make money. It's complicated because they actually don't make money from any concerts that they run. They have to make it up on selling merchandise and sponsorship and advertising and uh, maybe beer and parking and, of course, the ticket fees. Uh, so it's it's a weird business to look at, but one that we can see decades of runway of growth and nothing nothing can disrupt a live experience right going they're not participating in the unit economics on the 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 exchange of tickets though like when when the service fees come in is is that not gravy for live nation they're trying i mean they run uh 
it's scary for them to these resale tickets because they don't want to see they don't want to seem like they're trying to make more money from reselling than from uh, actually right. selling to an event. So they 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 are verified fans, right? So this twenty four hundred dollar Taylor Swift ticket, uh, they'll make money because they sold it. <laughs> To the person who originally bought it, and then they'll make money again on the resale. Right. So they, yeah, they are participating. Yeah. 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 And, and I get why people are up in arms about that because that's the, the resale model has created these $2,400 uh, Taylor Swift tickets. Well, the, the fact of the matter is, I mean, Taylor but it's a market. Yeah, it's, it's a market. market. Taylor, it's a market. Taylor Swift could play 300 nights a year for the next 10 years, and that would lower ticket prices and lower resale value. But that ain't going to happen. So as you said, it's a market. So I love marketplace businesses, two-sided marketplace businesses, especially when they're vertically integrated. And so Live Nation fits the bill for us. Barry, you have been uh, new to the podcast game. Hey, welcome uh, welcome to the podcast game. What, what's the handoff? How can people find your show? Thank you very much. Yeah, our podcast is called Long-Term Investing with Baskin Wealth Management. I am the host and generally uh, I do the podcast with my colleague, Ernest Wong, who's our head of research. Ernest is an incredible wealth of knowledge on a lot of investing topics as well as companies. He does amazing work here at Baskin. And we talk about you know the, the, the long-term approach um, and really we do in-depth reviews of companies that we own, of companies that we're following, of topics that are uh, interest of interest to us, and all with the mindset of uh, acting and thinking long-term. So that's our unique approach about it. Um, it's really just, we had clients who said, I want to know how you guys invest. I wish I was in the uh, investment committee mid- meeting with you guys right. and hearing what you talked about, what you liked, what you don't like. And so that's the approach we try to take. Uh, just a conversation between us. Uh, you know, we're not trying to have guests on it and not become oh, the wonderful thing that you've created, uh, but really just to talk to our clients about our approach. And, uh, you know, we're, it, it's ma- mainly meant for our clients, but always happy. And we put it up there for the, you know, everybody to listen and hopefully people uh, agree or disagree with our philosophy and, you know, love to hear people's feedback on it. Love it. Well, Barry, thank you for your time. As always, uh, I, you and I are very due for uh, a beer or lunch in, in the city. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on, sharing everything with... It, it's nice for the listeners, yeah. right? To have someone that comes on that's also does this professionally. And so make sure everyone tunes into your podcast it's called The Long... The Long Term? Long Term Investing with Baskin term. I was going to say that, but that sounds like yeah, it's a sexy, simple, but it's exactly sexy, what it exciting is. title. Long-term investing <laughs> with Baskin Wealth. You can find it on your uh, favorite podcast distribution platforms. And, uh, you know, Braden, I love talking investing. It's my passion. Um, it's what I love to do. I, I You know, it's so uh, I always appreciate uh, you giving uh, me a little time and uh, sharing our approach. It's uh, really appreciate it. And uh, nice uh, connecting with everybody. I just pulled it up. So I, I finally pulled it up. The uh, on, on Stratosphere, Apple service, because we track the segments and the KPIs, $21.2 billion in revenue in uh, the the July ending quarter. Oh, we're talking about Apple service revenues. Yeah. Not, uh, yeah. Uh, the, not the revenues from a long term investing uh, podcast. No. No, you, yeah, well you guys are doing more than you guys are doing more than 21.2 billion. Yes, of uh, course. Oh, that's interesting. Apple is just an incredible I mean these 
just to finish off, these businesses are, uh, they've gotten so large. They're not going to grow at those rates we saw in the past. But that doesn't mean they're not going to move from stage one to stage two, which is more share buybacks, more dividends, uh, more free cash flow. Per share, per share, it's just it, it's just <laughs> incredible. So uh, we're, we're we love these big techs, these mega cap uh, platforms, and um, I hope uh, hope continue on them for a long time. Barry, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Bye, and all the best. Thanks so much. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.